Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. The Thorn in the Nest, Episode 30 One thing more, Mother, before Marion joins us, Kenneth said, breaking a pause in the conversation. She surely need not owe nothing of the discovery we have made. I once at her earnest request told her of the doubt, and she was sorely distressed by it, to use her own expression, could hardly endure the thought that I might not be her very own brother. Shall we not let her remain in ignorance of that which could bring her nothing but sorrow? You are right, Kenneth. We will bury it in our own hearts, so far as she is concerned, along with that other terrible secret, sighed the mother in low, tremulous tones. They were silent again for a little. There was so much food for perplexing thought and the circumstances that surrounded them. Then, who is this Littleton, she asked, coming first here, taking pains to ingratiate himself with Marianne, asking many questions about you, afterward appearing in Chillicothe, having in the meantime visited Virginia, very possibly Tennessee also, does it not look as if he had a design in it all, a purpose to carry out? It does indeed, cried Kenneth in surprise and perplexity. And if so, doubtless he will cross my path again, perhaps Marion's also. But woe to him if he attempts further harm to that dear child, he added with stern and angry determination. Oh, Kenneth, beware, exclaimed the mother, half frightened at such vehemence in one usually so self-controlled. If he have evil designs toward our darling, we must baffle them by keeping her out of his way. We must indeed, he said, in quieter though, not less resolute tones, and while I am here she shall be my special care. A few days later, light was thrown on this dark question by a letter forwarded by Dale from Chillicothe, enclosed in one from himself, stating that he now had Riuma's Clark's evidence in proper shape. The enclosure was from England, and brought news of the death of a brother of Kenneth's own father, the last of that family. He had left a very considerable property to which Kenneth was the rightful heir, both by law and the provisions of his uncle's will, in case he could prove his identity. Failing that, Littleton, though only very distantly related, would inherit for lack of a nearer heir. He had therefore a strong motive for wishing to destroy whatever proof of Kenneth's real parentage might exist, unless he could make sure that such proof would be in favor of the supposition that Kenneth was the child of his reputed parent, the younger of the two Clenonans of the Tennessee tragedy. Hence his efforts to bribe Riuma Clark to silence. He had visited the neighborhood of the tragedy and learned just enough to assure him that if any living person could supply the missing link in the evidence it was she and she alone if he could prevent her doing so kenneth's claims must inevitably fall to the ground and by its failure his own succession be secured 
In his interview with the woman, he was made aware of the fact that one of the children bore a distinguishing mark, but it was impossible to discover whether Kenneth were that one or the other. In these letters written by the attorney of the deceased gentleman, Kenneth was informed of the antagonism of his own and Littleton's interests, warned that the latter might be supposed to entertain designs against him, and informed that he had gone to America. These letters and the answers to them were shown to Mrs. Clendenin and quietly discussed with her when Marion was not present. It seemed in the light of these revelations almost a foregone conclusion that Littleton was the man who had so nearly succeeded in preventing Kenneth from gaining the all-important evidence of the white squall of the Indian brave. And while the discovery of the Englishman's perfidious character gave Clennon an increased hope that his boast of having won Miss Lamar was false, it also augmented his anxiety for her in case it should prove true. The impulse to return at once to Chillicothe and seek an interview with her was often strong upon him, yet he put it resolutely aside for Marion's sake. So all important to her seemed his watchful care just at this crisis. And most wisely, tenderly, lovingly was the duty performed. They were seldom apart in her waking hours, and he exerted himself to the utmost to comfort and soothe, to amuse, to entertain, and by interesting her in other manners to keep her thoughts from dwelling upon her grief and disappointment. It was no longer unrequited love, for she had, as she said, cast Littleton out of her heart, but the heart was sore. Nevertheless, in the niche, once filled by the now broken idol, an aching void, her newly awakened woman's pride, too, was deeply wounded, and yet it came to her aid, helping her to bear up with resolution against the crushing sense of loss and humiliation. Deceived and wronged she had been, but none should know how deeply, none save the two to whom she was so dear, suspect that any such calamity had befallen her. Kenneth kept his patient much in the open air. The days were long, warm, and bright, and the two, or sometimes it was the three, when household cares could be laid aside by the mother, taking an early start and carrying lunch, books, and work with them, would seek out one or another secluded spot, some little glen among the hills, or some level place among their sides, or on their summits that gave them a fine view of the lower country, and where tree or vine or towering rock shielded them pleasantly from the too fervid rays of the sun, and there while away the hours, till the lengthening shadows warned them it was time to return. From her early recollection, Marian had loved Kenneth with well-nigh passionate devotion. He was to her the impersonation of all that is good and noble. Her father had been a perplexity, and at times almost a terror to her, silent, gloomy, and it his presence ever like a dark shadow in the house, ever imposing a vague restraint upon all manifestation of mirth and gladness. Her mother had heart and mind so intent upon him, that while loving her child very dearly, she had little time or opportunity to study her disposition or win her confidence. She was one indeed respected, honored, looked up to as counsellor and guardian never to be questioned, but it was Kenneth, her one brother, who was her closest confidant of all her childish joys, sorrows, and perplexities. 
In his early childhood, the father had been a different man, bright, cheery, pleasant-tempered, and genial, the mother able to do all a mother's part by him. He understood the change in its cause, understood also Marian's needs, and earnestly strove to supply to her whatever was lacking by reason of the strange and sad vicissitude that had come upon the family. Angus, born in the same hour with Kenneth, was the eldest child, Marian the youngest, and the last of the four or five who filled the gap between, and who had passed away from earth while she was still a mere babe. Thus everything conspired to make Kenneth all in all to her in the early days before he left home to pursue his medical studies. Since that he had been in all his absences her one correspondent, and except in the one matter of her acquaintance with Littleton, she had been wont to pour out to him in, what, in that way her thoughts and feelings without reserve. During the last year she had written but seldom, and the alteration in the tone of her letters, the few that he had received being short and constrained, had greatly puzzled and troubled him. Now he comprehended the cause. But the old unrestraint and confidence had returned, and the poor girl found the greatest consolation and support in Kenneth's presence. Kenneth's sympathy and love, her dear, dear brother, she called him, and he did not intend she should ever learn that he was not. Thus cheered and comforted, she soon began to regain strength, flesh, and color. Spirits, too, till at times her silvery laugh rang out quite merrily. One morning, several weeks after Kenneth's return, he and Marian were out among the hills at no great distance from home, where they had left Mrs. Clendenin busied with some domestic duty. Marian ambled along on her pony, Kenneth walking by its side, Caius leaping and bounding, now before and now behind, now in silence and anon waking the echoes with joyous bark. The sagacious creature evidently rejoiced over the improvement visible in his young mistress. Here is Prospect Hill, remarked Kenneth. Do you feel equal to climbing it? The slope is very gentle on this side, and I think your pony will carry you full two-thirds of the way up. For the rest you shall have the support of my arm. Oh, yes, she answered almost eagerly. We have not been there together for years, and I always enjoy the view so much. They made the ascent slowly, stopping now and again to take in the view from different points. When the way grew too steep for the pony, Kenneth tethered him to a tree, and lifting Marian from the saddle, half carried her to the top of the hill. The prospect here was very fine, looking off from a precipice two hundred feet high. They could take in the whole extent of their own little valley, and many miles of country lying behind it, beautifully diversified with hill and dell, meandering streams, forest and cultivated fields, farmhouses and villages stretching away far as the eye could reach toward the west and north, while south and east the lofty Alleghenies shut in the view seemingly at no great distance. 
though in reality miles away. With a folded shawl laid over the roots of a tree, Kenneth made a comfortable seat for Marion within two or three yards of the edge of the cliff, then threw himself down beside her, and they fell into cheerful chat, calling each other's attention to the varied beauties of the landscape spread out before them, and talking of other days when they had gazed upon it together. Neither of them had cast a look behind as they came up the hill, so they had not seen a man who stepped out of the woods into the road below just as they began the ascent, and stood for a moment gazing after them, then stealthily followed, not by the path they were pursuing, but creeping along to a little to one side, under cover of the bushes and trees that thickly closed that part of the hill. Reaching the top, still unnoticed, for their faces were turned from him, he concealed himself behind a clump of evergreens, whence he could take cognizance of both their movements and their talk without danger of discovering. It was Littleton, who had followed Kenneth into this neighborhood, and was prowling about with no very settled purpose, but with a vague idea of finding some means of removing him from his path. It might be that with the assistance of his valet alone he could, if circumstances should favor the design, carry out even yet the plan which had so signally failed under the auspices of Bill Shark and Brannon. He had spent many an hour in watching the brother and sister and listening to their mutual confidences when they little dreamed of his vicinity. Thus he had learned of Marion's changed feelings toward himself, and how he had sunk in her estimation. His vanity was sorely wounded, and as blessings brighten as they take their flight, he began to grow very desirous to win back her esteem and affection. Suffering had spiritualized her beauty, and watching the play of her features and her changing color as she conversed so unreservedly with Kenneth, he sometimes pronounced it superior to that of Miss Lamar. Yes, he began now that it was beyond his reach to cover the jewel he had won, then carelessly and heartlessly thrown aside. She had never looked lovelier than on this particular morning, and the impulse came strongly upon him to go to her and make an effort to recover lost ground. Why should he not present himself as having just come, after unavoidable detention, to fulfill his promise of return? He queried with himself, forgetting for the moment that he had told Kenneth he was engaged to Miss Lamar, thus proving that he was false to Marion, and only remembering that Kenneth could know nothing of the plots against his liberty and his inheritance to his uncle's estate. He would have preferred to see Marion alone, his inordinate self-esteem assuring him that in that case he would have little difficulty in re-establishing himself in her good graces. But Clendenin was always with her. Therefore, no time could be better than the present, and just then, as if the, to favor his design, Kenneth rose and left her, going to the very verge of the precipice, where he stood for several minutes gazing down into the little valley at his foot. Littleton approached at her with quick but noiseless tread, and happening to raise her eyes, they encountered him as he stood close at her side, intently scanning her features. She uttered a little cry of mingled surprise and alarm, at which Kenneth turned instantly and flew to the rescue. "'Don't be alarmed, sweet one,' Littleton said, but the words had scarcely left his lips when he found himself confronted by Kenneth. 
who with form erect and flashing eyes sternly demanded of him, How dare you, sir, venture to address my sister after the shameful manner in which you have acted toward her? She is your sister? Is she, sir? That is good news for me, Littleton said with a malicious gleam in his eyes. I am most happy to hear it. I am, I am her natural protector and intend to prove myself such in good earnest, returned Kenneth. As for you, sir, I have lately become aware of not only your perfidious conduct toward this poor innocent child, but also who you are and your probable errand to this country. Littleton grew pale with anger and fear. He did not think at the moment of Clendenin having received news from England, but supposed Shark, Brandon, or Hans had betrayed him, or perhaps Reuma Clark, though she could have told nothing save that he had bribed her to silence. A moment he stood shamefaced and irresolute. Then, anger getting the better of fear, he turned furiously upon his antagonist, heaping the most virulent abuse upon him, calling him coward, villain, supplanter, accusing him of robbing him of fortune and lady love and vowing sleepless revenge. He drew nearer and nearer to Kenneth as he spoke, using valiant and threatening gesticulations, and the latter confronting him with calm, quiet, yet sternly determined face kept constantly stepping back to avoid a collision, till again he stood on the very verge of the precipice. But with his back to it, and in the forgetfulness caused by excitement, utterly unconscious of his danger, whether Littleton was aware of it is uncertain, but he struck him a blow that sent him toppling over, and with a wild cry echoed by Marion, the terrified witness of the whole scene, he disappeared from sight. Littleton shrieked, fell on his knees, and crawling, shuddering, and trembling to the edge, looked over. There, down at the bottom of the steep descent of two hundred feet, lay something, indistinctly seen because of the distance and intervening trees that looked like a confused and lifeless heap. Oh, my God, have mercy, I have killed him, he cried, as springing to his feet. I've killed him, I've killed him, he repeated, clenching his hands and groaning aloud in an agony of terror and remorse. I've killed him, but God knows I didn't intend it. He glanced at Marion. She lay in a little white heap, apparently as dead as the one at the foot of the precipice. Then with flying footsteps he fled down the hill by the way he had come, nor paused, nor nor looked back till he reached the spot some half-mile distant, where he had left hands and the horses. The valet, spite of all his natural stolid indifference under ordinary circumstances, was startled into an exclamation of wonder and dismay at some of his pallid, terror-stricken countenance. Men got Munor, what is happen you to see von There's been an accident, he said. Clennon has fallen down a precipice and is probably killed, and I may be suspected of having had something to do with it. I must mount and away in haste. I shall take yonder road and travel east. Do you go and settle our bill for board, and follow me with the luggage? All haste, we must be miles away from here before the thing is discovered. Fortunately, I had expressed my intention of leaving today or tomorrow, so that our sudden departure need excite no suspicion. Not a word of the accident to anyone, remember. Be discreet and prompt, and you shall not fail of your reward. With the last words he vaulted into the saddle, put spurs to his horse, and galloped away at the top of his speed. What care heard he for the helpless girl who, whom he had left lying insensible and alone upon the hilltop? Ah, 
He cursed her between his clenched teeth and wished she might never wake again to tell his foul deed. She, its only human witness. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acre Soft Story Classic. <laughs>